we'll just read the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The last time I spoke to you, we emphasized, we, carried, we covered this text in verse 14. We emphasized two main points. First, we considered the question why John begins by using the term word or logos for Jesus. We do not spend time on the many different suggestions offered by scholarship, but suggested that John was not thinking in philosophical terms like Philo, or he was not reacting to the growing doctrines of the Gnostics. On the contrary, John was governed by the scriptures, by the Old Testament. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit. May that be by God's grace, the case this morning with us. We spent some time on emphasizing that God's word is a self-revelation of both his person and his purposes. Secondly, we drew from verse 14 as one of those many references as to God's desire. God's desire to dwell with his people. May God this morning, by his grace, Give us the ability to recognize that this is our condition. This morning as we sit here in this small, renovated storefront, that the God of the universe, who cannot be contained in temples, is here with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us, he's in our midst, he surrounds us, and he fills his word. So the triune God would meet with us this morning, and he would speak with us. What seems to be foolishness, this right of the church, to the world, to us, is most glorious. I think Ben expressed it adequately, this baptism. And so it is the idea that the creator, a creator, that the God of the universe would, as our team says, what is man that you're mindful of him? So we'll look this morning at a different aspect but just to impress upon us that it's God's purpose, God's desire to have us in fellowship, to have us in communion with him through the mediation of the Son, through his death and burial and resurrection, and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who baptizes us into that death and unites us together as his body, together with Christ. Today, I would like for us to consider the question posed in the title of our sermon, Why Bring Up Creation Here? Matthew and Luke begin with the genealogies of Christ. Mark jumps right into the ministry of Jesus. Why then does John begin with creation? As we've read, he begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There are three statements in verse 1. These could be standalone sentences. 
In the beginning was the Word, period. But there's an end. This, to me, speaks to the reference of time. It speaks to the beginning of time. Before time was, Jesus was. And the Word, Jesus was with God. It's in reference to space. Here the triune God in communion with one another from eternity past. Now the Holy Spirit is not mentioned directly here, but we know from Scripture uh, the doctrine that the Holy Spirit, uh, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father were in eternity bound together as one God. Three persons, yet one God, as our creeds would tell us. And then finally, the Word was not just with God, but the Word was God. It's in reference to his being. I'm not even sure I know the word. Is it ontology? The doctrine of being? Did I get that right word? Okay. In verse 2, John moves from the word to the personal pronoun, he. So it's not just an idea. It's not just a theory. It's not just a, a group of concepts. It's not just dogma that we hold. But we hold to a person. A living person. An eternal person. Yes, a person who came and walked upon this earth and took on flesh. But he's not just concepts, he's not just doctrines, but he is a one person of the triune Godhead. And so John ties him back to Genesis. He says, and, and you know the scripture, in the beginning God created. In the Hebrew, we find two sentences really combined, just like we have three sentences joined by an and, the Hebrew grammar is, is different from the Greek, though I know little about it other than what I've read. But I do know this, that in the Greek there are nominal, I mean Hebrew, there are nominal sentences. You do not have to use is or was. And so we can simply read in the beginning God. In our language we translate in the beginning God was, but they, true to the original text, in the beginning God. Then we read, in the beginning, God created. And all that we know, all that we experience, all that we see, all that we feel, we feel in space and time in this creation. God created this world for us to live in so that he might reveal himself to us. And the very first revelation of himself is his internality as the self-existing God and as the creator. And as creator, he is the owner and the Lord of his creation, as we will see. Couldn't help but think as I was studying and referred back to Wednesday night. We're studying 1 Timothy, and we're in chapter 2, I think it was. And we got down to verse 13, and there you read, Adam was formed first, then Eve. My point in this text teaches us that unlike creation of man and woman, there is no first and then. There is no God, then Jesus, then the Holy Spirit. It's simply God, three persons in one. Know the word he and God were in the beginning before all else that came later. But then the second sentence says that the word was with God, pointing to the two persons together at the same time. Unless there is any doubt concerning Jesus' deity, God states categorically, uncategorically, that the Word was both with God and was God. Now it seems apparent to me that all three of these ideas, though they could stand alone, they don't stand alone, but are dependent upon each other. 
their time together for the purpose of giving us a complete or a more complete disclosure of the person who was called the Word. So John ties together Genesis 1 with his prologue, uh, the prologue of his gospel that bears his name to demonstrate from the beginning union and unity between the Father and the Son, both in purpose, both in their creative ability and uh, in their union and desire and pleasure in each other. But why? D.A. Carson puts it this way regarding this text. He says, here then are some of the crucial constituents of the full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and the words of Jesus are the deeds and the words of Christ. He will say this over and over again through the book of John. We concur, but would add to Carson's words, deeds and words, his very being, not just what he did, but who he is. We don't worship him simply because what he's done or the gifts that we give. We worship him because he's worthy to be worshipped. Through the many signs presented in this proclamation of the Christ, we will hear his voice and observe seven, the number of completion and perfection, seven signs that set him above creation. We'll also observe in the book of John, we will hear seven declarations of I am that set him above time and all else that exists in creation. So both John and Genesis begin with the drama of creation. There are many creation stories if you go into other lands and go back to their creations, like a turtle carrying the world on its back. They're all filled with these visions of these uh, visual concepts of how the world became into being. Here, verbally, God tells us in his word through Moses. He gives us this drama of creation where the world is dark and without form and without void, and God simply says, let it be. And as I like to say, and it be. God's word is creative. We've seen an example of his creation today. Uh, and our brother Ian, and we've experienced the creative power of the word of God. It was not by our spirit or by might, but it's by the power of the Lord. It spoke truth into our hearts, and the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and gave us life, and we believed, and we repented, and we confessed that he is Lord. But from this drama of creation, we have the doctrine. We've already the doctrine of the creator, the doctrine of creation, uh, the doctrine of the trinity, this doctrine is simply teaching that leads us to doxology, to praise, to thanksgiving and worship. Then flowing from that, the spirit within us prompts us to discipleship, to service unto good works. While Genesis gives us two chapters concerning creation, John can abbreviate, for he assumes and knows that his readers are familiar with the Old Testament text. I dare say there's probably hardly a person here that doesn't know something of the creation story. And so they knew that all things, John continues with his abbreviated story of the creation by simply being, all things were created through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Again, we have 
basically two sentences combined into one both affirm the same idea one is stated positively and one is stated negatively all things not some things or many things but all things were created by him and though it doesn't say it here we know from scripture that all things were not only created by him but were created with delight with intention with design and with purpose in creation that which was not becomes by an act of divine purpose and thus it has in mind it has in mind the creator in the mind of the creator the worth and value that he places on it it is good it is good it is very good the negative way of saying it is there is not one thing that exists today no matter how large or how small simple or complex seemingly significant or insignificant that exists without him neither the vastness of the universe with these multiple galaxies or a single flea exists apart from divine desire and delight there's nothing i can say that can add to this i think the scriptures and the holy spirit has to explain to us the wonder and the majesty of of creation and the power and the wisdom of God in it but just to emphasize it I'll read from God's own word the significance and the importance of creation and why John brings it in here Hebrews the writer to the Hebrews says long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son John Logos the word whom he appointed the heir of all things. We talked about ownership because he's the creator. <clears throat> the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Speaking of Jesus, the Logos, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul speaks similarly. In Colossians, we read, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Notice it's not saying that he was the first created, but he was the firstborn of all creation. <clears throat> Later in chapter 10, we'll read that when Christ came into the world, God had prepared a body, a physical body for him. God created a body for the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came from the glories of heaven into this world, now he's returned to the glories of heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It is a matter of both, it is a matter both, firstborn, it is a matter both of his pre-existence and his preeminence over that which he has created. He continues to explain, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Just by word of application, you were created by him and you were created for him. You have no other reason 
for existence today other than that God created you. He created me for himself. And so therefore he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So the writer John, the writer to the Hebrews and Paul speak in unison. We must acknowledge this seminal importance of this truth and the consequences that flow from it. Not that he created the world as some sort of clock and then stands back outside of time and space, but he created the world and you and I, and we said even the flea, for his delight and his purposes. The New Testament scholars stood, <coughs> students were students of the word and stood on the shoulders of the Old Testament writers. I'll give you a few examples. John uh, Jeremiah in chapter 10, verse 12 says, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. I can hear someone say intelligent design. The world and science may give you some explanation of the origins of the world, but how can they really fully appreciate this chaotic, mechanistic development of all that we see that has no, really, in its design, any purpose other than to continue, to continue, to continue. I never got so upset. I was with a, we were with a couple one night eating supper, and he was, uh, he reminded me often that I'm a, I have a PhD. He was a geneticist. He was a brilliant man. I don't question his, uh, his credentials, and I would not question the science that he proposed. But he was an evolutionist. And I don't know how it came up in the conversation, but I, to, my, in, in my, to, to humble me, this is, this is told to me by my wife. She says, I prayed to meet you. And I was sharing with him that God is involved in things. I prayed to meet you before we ever met. And he said, that's simply uh, evolution, the desire to procreate and to extend the species. And I thought, ah, there's no need to carry this conversation any further. He's missed out on the wonder and the glory of uh, desire for something spiritual in a relationship. Isaiah says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Psalm, the psalmist says in chapter 33, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth the world, and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I'll finish with this. Nehemiah, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that are in them. You preserve all of them and the host of heaven worship you. If the heavens declare the glory and the hosts of heaven worship him, so should we rebels who have been rescued by his grace give him all glory and worship him. We'll skip this section on all of the theories. We're going to cover it anyhow that science offers, but just Google origin of the universe 
And in the first page, you'll see that there are contradictions and there are theories and there are theories that contradict the theories and there's always a new theory to sell a new book. I'm not being anti-science. I took my vaccine shots, okay? But I'm simply saying, by faith, we believe in the Creator God. By faith, we believe in the resurrection. By faith, we believe in the virgin birth. By faith, we believe that our sins have been forgiven. By faith, we have hope that one day we will spend eternity with the creator of the universe. But everyone wants something practical, right? <laughs> I'll give you something practical. Three texts, uh, one from the Old Testament or two from the Old Testament. Let me see, what have we got? Yeah, two from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament that use creation in a very pastoral or practical way. The joke... Uh, <clears throat> Why do we have a prayer list? Why did Rosa cut her hand? Why does Clara suffer constantly from back pain? Why did Kate suffer from oppression and deprivation? From all observations and personal testimonies, these people love God and neighbor. Why has evil befallen them? Well, that's the doctrine of theodicy, how to vindicate God who is all wonderful and generous with the reality of evil in the world. Well, there's a case study. God doesn't leave any stone unturned. There's a case study. It's the book of Job. Job was a man, Job as a man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Yet men, mankind, creatures, uh, fire from heaven and a great wind robbed him of all that he had. Two acts of nature and two acts of men can rightly be called evil in Job's lives. His friends and his wife and others came and they tormented it with accusations. When you're down and out, that's all you need is more criticism, right? So why suffer? What brought him suffering in body and soul? We won't go through all 40-some chapters of Job, but let me simply just give you a collage of some, how God responded to Job's questioning. He says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and said, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb and said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Who has put wisdom in the inner parts and given understanding to the mind? And the Lord said to Job, Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Paul, borrowing from uh, the Old Testament, put it similarly. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me thus? Or like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out the same lump, one vessel for honor and use and another for dishonor. You may think that you want a God that you can manipulate, that you can entreat in such a way and cajole in such a way to get what you want. But if you get that kind of God, you have no God at all. You have to have a God who's independent. Keeping in mind, the scripture presents him as powerful and as good. All power would be a fearful thing. But goodness without any power, what good would it do? But God is both. 
The second text is from Matthew chapter 6. And here Jesus is dealing with a host of subjects, but he, and you're familiar with the text, but he draws from nature illustrations, from creation, if you would. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? This is Jesus asking the question. This is Jesus teaching. He's talking about his Father. He's talking about himself. You're more valuable than the birds, and yet... We take care of them. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In a few months, the pansies will pop forth. Glorious. If you don't like flowers, get a life. <laughs> There's something about the glory of God in a rose. I mean, a real rose that has a scent to it. Uh, I love pansies. They endure the winter, the snow. They're falling over, and then they'll burst forth in the spring. The amaryllis, it looks dead, and all of a sudden you see these leaves, and then big leaves, and then a beautiful, glorious flower. Mankind borrows. Artists borrow from these colors, and they tried to replicate something of the creation that God did. But these flowers themselves, they did nothing. They didn't toil or spin. It's God who has done it. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you a little faith. Look to the creation and see what God has done. And what God is doing. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will add, be added to you. It says in another place, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his own soul? And then finally, from Psalm 139, I say this is personal an intimate aspect of creation. The psalmist, and this is just a portion of it, he says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The dark, the night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. And then he continues, for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. I can only proclaim that there is a God above who created the heavens and the earth. And he created the earth that it might be 
filled with image bearers who were created that they might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. My question to you is, do you know Him? Can you say with a surety, this is my God, I am His person. I trust in what He has done for me on the cross. I believe that Jesus came, the spotless Lamb of God, to die for me. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and sing. That's our last hymn.